tell me, please, which way I ought to go from here? That depends a good deal on where you want to get to, said the cat. I don't much care where, said Alice. Then it doesn't matter which way you go, said the cat. So long as I get somewhere, Alice added as an explanation. Oh, you're sure to do that, said the cat, if only you walk long enough. I'm Lynn Miller. And I'm John Modaff. And this is The Unruly Muse. You've just heard a brief little snippet from Alice's Adventures in Wonderland by Lewis Carroll. And oh, I do love that Cheshire cat. Yes, and there's poor Alice in between worlds. So she's just the perfect hostess for our program this week. Which is called The In-Between. And why was she such a good choice for the in-between zones of this theme? She bounces from world to world throughout this marvelous story. And uh, sometimes she's too big, sometimes she's too small. In any case, she's lost in this escalating fantasy. Yes, yes. Horrifying and amusing all at once. Sounds like life. What else do we need to tell our, our friends? The only thing I can think of is that right now we're sort of living, going down the rabbit hole, just like Alice did with COVID-19 rampaging. We're not sure where we're headed. That's true. I think all of us didn't intend to, but we took a good long draft from that bottle that said, drink me, right about February of 2020. And we're still, you know, taking potions, growing, shrinking, trying to find our way out of that rabbit hole, by the way. Well, we try to keep it light on the unruly muse because we know that things are never as bad as we think they are. But we also have to acknowledge that uh, things ain't good in a lot of respects. And this first song, the first piece we're going to share with you, this program, isn't the 11th hour. It's called the 10th hour because it's the hour where things just start getting weird. So here it is, the 10th hour.
Thank you, John. I love how you captured, to me, the rabbit hole in that song, The Tenth Hour. I felt like I was floating through time, falling, rising, just like Alice when she follows the white rabbit down the rabbit hole. One of the things I love about that story, of course, is that it's it's terrible and terrifying and awful and all that, but it's also really funny and kind of beautiful at the same time. So the 10th hour is about the hour before things are really bad, which is the 11th hour. That's the hour where it's make or break, right? But we're in the 10th hour now, I think. And I want to thank my son, Jonathan, and my daughter, Kelly, for joining in on that. Jonathan played the guitar part on that, and Kelly played the piano. The the moving in waves is, I think, more of the way, especially in trying times that we experience life. It builds, it gets intense, and then something lets us relax if it's sleep or some diversion, and then it starts to build again. And so the song moves in those harmonic to disharmonic waves. Well, it's the perfect in-between song. Well, I'm glad that you think so. I do. And I'm reminded of in Alice when the Cheshire Cat says to her, they're mad about all of the things going on in Wonderland. And Alice says, but I'm not mad. (laughs) And the Cheshire Cat says, yes, you are if you're here. Oh. You're mad, <laughs> which which is kind of where we are often in life, right? Yes. It's like we think there's madness around us, but we are in it, so we're part of it. Well, next on The Unruly Muse, an adaptation from the novel The Unmasking. Let's give a little background on that. In an homage to the locked room mystery, Lynn's recent novel, The Unmasking, which came out last year in October, follows three friends who are professors. Their names are Miriam, Bettina, and Fiona, who suspect murder when their dean dies in a one-car accident after embezzling university funds. Not necessarily because of this, but after this. They travel to a resort (laughs) in New Mexico where they join others in performing remarkable women from history, such as Gertrude Stein and Virginia Woolf and Mabel Dodge. Is it Luhan? Luhan. Luhan, good. Victoria Woodhull and Edith Wharton, of course. But when one woman is kidnapped and another disappears, their friends' lives are forever changed They realize the masks we wear often hide chilling truths. Thank you, John. And to just explain about the locked room mystery, which you just introduced, that is an old convention that has had great staying power from popular examples like Agatha Christie's novel and movie, and then there were none, to the recent movie Knives Out. There's usually only one way in and one way out of the locked room, Yet in this kind of mystery, the key is, how was someone able to enter the space where the crime occurred, murder his or her victim, and exit without seemingly leaving a clue? Yes. In these novels and films, characters are they are often confined in this remote setting. All have motives, of course, a secret affair or a luster revenge of an old slight, a desire to inherit large sums. One by one, each person that was mysteriously killed in these stories. Miriam, one of the three characters John mentioned, in her keynote on the locked room mystery that she gives at the festival, puzzles through the crime of Dean Alec Martin's death that on the surface seems like an accident, yet which was carefully orchestrated. Here is the end of that passage. I ask you to contemplate a mind facile and arrogant enough to predict that an act of premeditated violence would appear 
100 times out of 100 as just a bad break. Casual, unfortunate, just one of life's little surprises, like a slip on a slick staircase, or a skid in the shower, or a burst vessel in the brain. It was something that could happen to anyone at any time. But Alec's death would not have happened at any time, just at one, on a Friday morning at rush hour, in the one-mile drive from the victim's home to his neighborhood grocery. Call it designer's delight. Call it devil's play. Call Call it it the perfect perfect crime. crime. Very Sherlock Holmesian, don't you think? Yeah, I like the way this is cooking so far. Of course, the car where the dean dies is a locked room all by itself. Yes, that's true. Well, let's read from a scene where Miriam and the investigating officer, Lieutenant Susan Crane, enter the locked storage room at the facility they've been performing in, hoping to find the missing Barbara. They glided into the entry through the great room, which held only a large round table for the final festival participants' dinner that evening, and into the small dining area by the kitchen. In that space, even the art on the hand-plastered walls, usually so bold in its design throughout the lodge, appeared tentative and hushed, as if waiting for something or someone. A simple pencil drawing of a horse alone in a field, a watercolor of a stream making its way alongside a road. Liminal zones, thought Miriam, places where people were not here or there, but on the way to becoming. Lieutenant Crane put her ear to the door of the storage room. Silence, she whispered. She waved Miriam forward. As Miriam laid a hand against the cool wooden door and listened, she too could hear nothing stirring inside. Slowly, Crane extended her hand and cradled it around the doorknob. Her face creased in strain. Impatiently, she brushed strands of hair off her forehead with the other hand, then tensed her arm and turned the knob. The door swung open. The storage room loomed in front of them like a black pit. If quiet could make a sound, the room echoed with emptiness. The detective moved ahead. Behind her, Miriam was startled to see a gun in Susan Crane's hand leveled into the center of the room. The detective slapped the wall with her other hand and flipped the light switch. A fluorescent light in the ceiling cast its unrelenting glare on the table and shelves. Canned goods and old appliances, a small fan with a bent blade, a toaster, a tiny microwave lined the shelves. The table was dust-free and empty. Nothing was on the scuffed wooden floor but an old pair of boots, neatly lined up to the kickboards to the right of the door. Look! Miriam pointed at the coat rack. Barbara's Mabel Dodge Luhan costume hung from one curved arm, limp, its black seed pearls glinting in the harsh light. The two women edged forward, pinned to the right shoulder of the gown, was a white note with a single word typed upon it. Goodbye. Goodbye. At one point in the novel, Miriam says that perhaps we all get the locked room that we deserve. Yeah, that's a scary thought. It is. Yeah. I mean, you you could say that the locked room is the perceptions that we all have. The way we see things can end up being a locked room. We don't let enough new ideas in or the old bad ideas out sometimes. And you devilish authors, you bank on that. You know, I've read the novel, and I was led into really wrong guesses about who was doing it and why they were doing it. 
that worked because of what you just described, because I had the way I was looking at everything from, you know, the first third of the novel, I was pretty well set. And I couldn't unsee or unthink some of the conclusions I'd made, and that's what got me going down the wrong path. But it's satisfying to be wrong in stories like this as a reader. Yes, you like to take the 90-degree turns or the 180s. You like the clues to add up one way, and then something which we can call a reversal happens in the novel, and then we have to look at the clues again and see how they add up this time. Yes. Well, I encourage our listeners... If you like a good detective story, and if, I hate to say this, but if you're an academic and the idea of a dean uh, losing his life in an auto wreck appeals to you, then you may really enjoy this book. But, uh, but, <laughs> or, but again, or then again, say, I'm talking to the woman who wrote The Death of a, de- of a Department Chair, right? Yes. Yes, I do have a, a jaundiced eye toward academia. <laughs> and since, since, John, that's where you and I earned our living for many years— I think we're entitled to a bit of a jaundiced eye, don't you? Yes, and we were so well-behaved during our careers. We never once murdered anyone. Even though we wished to. In the administration. (laughs) In the administration, I have to say. And so that restraint deserves a reward. And so you can just kill off as many administrators and faculty members as you'd like, whatever it takes, Lynn. Whatever it takes. Yeah, well, you know, the ultimate revenge is writing well, they say. Yes. Well, you've done it in the unmasking, and really I do recommend it if you're a fan of uh, detective works and also a really interesting about six-way approach to the locked room mystery because it's it's a room in a room. This this book is a is many rooms inside of rooms, and it's really interesting and lively characters, and I might say some diversions into some interesting background about the women that are featured at the conference. Right. If, 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 there's a lot of women's history, and the, the book fortunately came out in 2020, which was the 100th year of suffrage for women in the U.S. One of the women performed in the book is Victoria Woodhull, who was the very first woman to run for president in 1872 at the head of a major party. Very good. So there's a little bit of that thrown in also. Yes. It's sort of like when I read Moby Dick, I learned a whole bunch of stuff about whaling. But it's really not <laughs> a book about whaling. All of which you use now. <laughs> <laughs> All right, next up on The Unruly Muse, a wonderful poem by Tina Carlson called Anatomy of Silences. And luckily, Lynn has got some words from Tina giving some context to this poem. Yes, John. Uh, Tina wrote me, In this poem, I was interested in unraveling the secrets and stories that can arise from one word. I chose words that have resonance for me in these times we are living in to create the prompt for each section. Yes, so each section has a title and then under it varying levels of liminality and expression. and It's very dense with symbols, so Tina will try to do it justice. We will. Here we are with Anatomy of Silences. Confess. The firstborn bears the weight of words caught in her parents' dark throats. There is a flaw in the fireplace of their bed, and their dreams sift the still air for sin. Song. Salt. When she is born, they feed her blood. She learns the hymnal of Fematocrit. Take this, then we will never speak of it again. Saxophone. Inhale the dark, long hallways with closed doors. The cloister of the body's caverns. The opposite of a red hymnal behind the pew. Exhale the music bones make deep 
in their marrow when dancing. Pronoun. What we pass around on a plate and offer to strangers. The certainty of coins in a wishing well. I am she. And she is they. He says touch. She says grab. In Spanish, dawn is female. As in that light that begins us. Battle. Revenge starts fires in our mind. Burns up the stories containing a hope of water. Once she was bled, the ancestors had a heyday building a ship for drowning. Even the sky has eyes. Alien. You are what you eat, the teacher tells small children. Once she exits the schoolyard, she chews on fallen leaves. Like wings, they float through her. She lives in a tribe of wet sand and pollinators. Listen to the languages that haunt her. Siphon the code words for ghost. And bone. Rupture. Escape. You know what I love about this poem, John, is that besides the sounds that Tina mentioned in her Genesis, other things lurk in this poem family secrets and hauntings, like the line, revenge starts fires in our mind. Yes, and that super concise expression of the polarity of two people experiencing the same thing where he says touch and she says grab. Right. It's just really dense with that sort of tension and fuzzy boundary between things based on perception. Exactly. And I I like how our two voices sort of tug also at the meanings. Well, that's a wonderful piece of work, Tina, and we, we really appreciate you sharing it with us. Thank you, Tina. Welcome back to The Unruly Muse. Next up, a poem by Hilda Raz called The Sisters. Lynn, what can you tell us? Hilda has given us a wonderful genesis for this poem. She says, The Twelve Dancing Princesses was my favorite Brothers Grimm fairy tale, maybe because I had so many wonderful aunts. We girl cousins were raised together, sometimes with one aunt, then another, sometimes with our own mothers and fathers. In old age, after productive and happy lives, those sisters came back to live together. This poem had been in my mind for a long time. And, of course, she takes the Twelve Dancing Princesses from the Brothers Grimm and turns it into her poem, The Sisters. Once there were twelve sisters who lived together. They were old now, within a decade of beyond old, but still they were alive. Alive. They slept in a room they'd shared as children. Each had a life remembered, a beloved, pet, Their own children, who were cousins who'd summered together at the beach each year. With their papas, their mamas, their aunts. Now the sisters were old. In the mornings, they'd arise, put on cotton robes, pull cushions out from under their beds to sit on. Each faced a window. Each had a bureau, just big enough to hold her treasures. Every morning, they sat. One morning, the sisters awoke with sore feet. Ouch, each complained. Ouch, nothing to be done. They looked for their shoes and found tatters. 
All day they went barefoot in the garden, in the kitchen, under stars. When they sat down on their beds before sleep, tired, each found new shoes sparkled with sequins, sewn felt. Treasures. Each sister lay down and slept. Next morning they woke again with sore feet, their sparkly slippers again tatters. All day again they went barefoot in the garden, in the kitchen, under stars. Then time for bed. Surprise! Each found sparkly slippers made of felt, some green, some gold, some purple or opal, and many other colors. They smiled at each other, lay down and slept. Years passed. The old sisters grew older, their feet knurled and blistered. Piles of old shoes thrown out their windows into the backyard loam, like mementos of lives extinguished. Dogs came to sniff and dig. One dog, a noble beast, carried around a string of tatters in his mouth. He seemed to dig when nobody watched him. Most of the time he was invisible. The sisters slept more and more in light as well as darkness. In the air, a swirl of soft bells, the sounds of trumpet, rhubarb, and drum. One midnight, the eldest sister opened her eyes. Surprise! Around her, a whirl of sisters. And the noble dog followed along behind, dragging his tatters. Each sister had a partner, a clattering bone bag, slender of wrist and ankle, waist and neck. Who held her at her own wrist and waist, held tightly. They swung as the dog leapt and wove himself into lacy ropes and shadows. Were you there? I was. I saw the sisters dance, the dog jump. The bones begin to flower. Oh, that's a marvelous poem, John. Yes, it is. And thank you so much, Hilda, for sharing that with us to share with our audience. Uh, Lynn, what appeals to you about this poem in relation to the story that it's based on? Well, for one thing, I'm always fascinated by contemporary versions of ancient stories. And this is an old one that kind of repeats through various poems and stories again and again. I think given our in-between theme of being neither here nor there, that this poem appeals to me because it's about the aging process itself. We see the sisters having grown old, but they still continue to dance just as they did as young women. And they get older and older, and then they regain youth in a way by whirling about the eldest sister And yet they're older than ever, and instead of dancing with slim, beautiful young men, they're dancing with skeletons. Right. What a great way to say that. Bone bags. (laughs) Yeah, bone bags. I mean, That's so great. Clattering bone bag. Uh, Slender. And yet, this is what she does so many times in the poem. I mean, look at this phrase, a clattering bone bag. Oh, that sounds like a hot date. But then the next line or the next phrase is slender of wrist and ankle. So she she makes even a skeleton look good. She finds the uh, the pretty side of the really sad texts that are woven throughout this piece. It never it never goes all the way over into despair over the end of life. Exactly, because as as we find out at the end, 
the bones begin to flower, begetting the next generation of dancers. So one of the things I think is so masterful about the poem is this loop of time and of memory that it just keeps going around and around. Yes, it comes in waves, sort of like the 10th hour that we heard earlier, where there are these surges and then retreats and surges and retreats with experience. And that's part of our theme this time on The Unruly Muse, is this in-between where we spend so much of our time, and we're well aware that we are. You know, it's not subliminal, it's liminal. We know that we don't know. Right, And, and we don't know how much time there is, and often we don't know how much time has passed. I'm reminded of the terms chronos time and kairos time where we have Kairos time is flow time, what we have when we create, which is impressionistic time. And Kronos time is actual physical time. And in this poem, the two of them go back and forth so that we imagine by the end of the poem that there will always be 12 dancing sisters. Yes. And they're old, but they're not old all at once. Right. They hold the two states. Well, speaking of two states at the same time, there's an old image of uh, from the cartoons uh, and other movies and media where an angel sits on one shoulder and a devil sits on the other shoulder. And our next and our last piece here on The Unruly Muse this time is a song that works over that tension and that predicament of having both spirits in one simultaneously. And it's called Saturday's Child. Even the old Savior had a 
was your genesis for writing this song, which is uh, so poignant and part of, I think, a long tradition of Roots music? The predicament that the heroine of the song is in, and a lot of us, I think maybe all of us are in, is this struggle between what we would aim to be and what we actually are. And, mm-hmm. and these things live in the same body. But she uh, sits on the porch and she thinks about how she rocks back and forth between being uh, Saturday's child, that is, being kind of a a rascal, and uh, also having a strong commitment to what we presume happens on Sunday. Well, we would kind of like to see the astrological chart of this woman, wouldn't we? (laughs) Because, Because of the tensions between religion and what her life has been. And there's something liminal about a Saturday to me. It's kind of the end of the week before Sunday, which is, I guess, thought to by, by many to be a kind of purification. But Saturday is kind of the devil's day. It's that in-between, like Sam Hain there around Halloween time. And uh, you're, not, you're never as far away from the end of the previous week or the beginning of the next week as you are on Saturday night. And that actually segues into our next program, which is going to feature poems and stories and music about carnival. Yes, what happens during the day and the night on Saturdays quite often. That's right. People having a ball, people having a blast, and the weirdness and the oddity that sometimes creeps into the carnivalesque. And perhaps the human comedy as well. Yes, yes. So we're going to play it up in the carnival in episode three of The Unruly Muse. Before we go, I guess we should tell everybody once again if they want to find out more information on the show where they can check that out. Absolutely. You can go to theunrulymuse.net, contact us, and find out a little bit more about us. Feel free. I'm Lynn Miller. And I'm John Modaff. And this is The Unruly Muse. Unruly Muse. 